This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with writer, broadcaster and musician Sean Pryor. Sean joined me to discuss her latest book, Childless, a story of freedom and longing. Childless is about Sean's seven-year-long quest to become a mother and how that failure affected every part of her life. Sean reflects on those who are childless but not by choice, which has become an issue for a rising number of Australians. Please note there is a content warning for this interview. In it we talk about miscarriage, IVF treatments and the struggle to become a mother and a parent. This may be distressing for some listeners. We are going to though be discussing an issue that is really serious and present for many people. Um, Maybe someone is currently experiencing this or has in the past, but we're going to be talking about childlessness, those people who are childless but not by choice. And we're going to specifically be speaking right now, in fact, with Melbourne-based writer, broadcaster and musician Sean Pryor talking about her book that's been released, Childless, A Story of Freedom and Longing, which has been published by Text Publishing. Sean's previous book was called Shy, A Memoir. And as I said before the break, there is a content warning with this conversation because it may bring up past trauma or present trauma. We will be discussing issues like miscarriages and, of course, those who wanted to be parents but could not be. So this is a something that's certainly not often talked about but needs to be talked about more and Sean has made such a great contribution to the conversation with this book. So I welcome onto this show for the very first time Sean Pryor. Hi there, Sean, and thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Oh, hi, Amy, and thank you so much for giving me a chance to... Um yeah, to talk about this very, very tricky um, life experience. When I was reading through this book, a lot of it is deeply personal, a very deeply personal book, and although you do draw on other sources in kind of contrasting chapters and talk about broader societal influences or issues relating back to childlessness, a lot of this is very much your personal story. So I wondered if you could take us back to the start of where this story began and your feelings about children and motherhood. Yeah, it's hard to know where it began really, isn't it? Um, And in part that's because I don't remember a time when I didn't want and expect to have children of my own. Um, I have always loved children and loved spending time with children and, you know, I was lucky enough to have a bunch of younger cousins in my big sprawling family who I got to spend time with and, um, you know, I was king of the kids, (laughs) queen of the kids. Um, And so, yeah, I just always... I just always expected that when the right time came, in inverted commas, I would have kids. And, you know, I think, to be honest, I was probably even more certain that I would have kids than that I would end up in, a, you know, the right kind of relationship. I think I just always thought, well, by hook or by crook, I'm going to do this thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's something that um, a lot of women would often grapple with, this kind of development, I guess, that you know, our mothers and grandmothers in the past would have 
usually had children, not always, but um, usually started having children younger in their 20s. And we still do see some people doing that. But more and more, it seems that um, people are becoming pregnant in their 30s. And we hear, you know, a lot of discussions. We get kind of bombarded with news stories about freezing our eggs because time's running out and we should all be panicking uh, about whether we'll be able to have children or not. Um, And there is this kind of big financial anxiety, I think, for women and people who want to become pregnant as well, isn't there? Yeah, well, um, I mean, for so many reasons. It's, you know, especially if you end up having to try and do it solo, as I eventually did. Um, But, yeah, in in general, we're living in in tricky economic times. And um, so, yes, and having a kid both, you know, raising a child, but for those of us who end up having to do IVF, um, it is incredibly expensive. And, you know, fertility rates are dropping um, all over the Western world. And you have to wonder whether that is in part because um, people are, well, I think there's a whole lot of reasons, but in part because it's so, you know, it's so expensive to, um, to have children. But, you know, when I first started trying to have a child, I wasn't thinking about anything like that. I was really sort of monofocused, I think, on just having this thing that I, I so badly wanted. Yeah, and, you know, we're taken through your your early, the early part of your journey where you're trying um, and you start off with uh, a partner. Um, they all seem to have a musical influence, it seems, which is really lovely. Um, funny that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you too, of course, yeah. uh, with your passion for music. Um, and there was this, I guess there are a few times that are quite striking and um, where you describe your experience of having a miscarriage and especially the one where you're um, doing an OB, as we call it, or an outside broadcast at the Heidi Museum and you describe what that was like, you know, for you. But I I wanted to be able to talk about this, and you do talk right about it in this book, um, because I know that there will be many people listening who have had a miscarriage but perhaps haven't spoken about it with uh, their friends or their loved ones or, um, you know, they just don't often get, you know, the time to reflect on it. Maybe they've pushed it aside because it's a too traumatic experience. But I wanted to be able to to talk about this, if you don't mind, um, and your reflections on that experience of having, you know, met multiple miscarriages in a row. Mm. Yeah, so when I was in my early 30s, uh, you know, I was in a relationship with a very lovely bloke who, who would have made a great father. Um and we decided it was the right time, and so we started trying. And I, um, you know, almost immediately got pregnant, but had a very early miscarriage, and that was really shocking to me because, to be honest, I hadn't even thought about the possibility of of miscarriages. And maybe that's in part because of what exactly what you just described, Amy, because it's not miscarriages are not something that are commonly talked about or acknowledged or. Um, yeah, or, or presented as a possibility, um, and, and you know, I think in part that's because, as you said, it's it's pretty hard and sad and and potentially traumatic, and so people don't necessarily want to rehearse their trauma in public. And partly it's because I think some of us have struggled with feeling like 
grief over a miscarriage is legitimate because it's, well, you know, that's a whole other topic, isn't it? When, mm. is, when is a pregnancy a person? But, you know, it's sort of, um, you know, it's almost like it, a, a, a very early miscarriage doesn't have the status of an actual death and therefore it's hard to feel like you have a right to grieve. Um, and one of the things that I realised in writing my story in this book is that I never really gave myself the time or, you know, or permission to acknowledge the, the, the grief that I have felt after three miscarriages and, and all that followed that. So, you know, again, I think that's part of what I wanted to do was to say to readers, this is a really hard and sad thing. And it deserves it, it deserves its own grief and it deserves its own acknowledgement. Um, you know, and I suppose I, I grew up as a sort of early, you know, my early adulthood was in the 80s and I was the, the beneficiary of multiple waves of feminism and we had the pill and we had, you know, career opportunities and I just assumed that I could do whatever I wanted with relation to my fertility um, and just turned out to not be the case. Mm. And it seems like there are so many different circumstances that can lead to this as well. Um, I did want to touch on the miscarriage topic a little bit more because, as you say, a lot of people might push that grief to the side. It may not feel like it's legitimate or they might be, you know, fearful that people might judge them for holding on to that grief. Um, but there's also, you know, the moment that it's happening as well, which a lot of people might, you know, have that keep calm and carry on um, approach that you did have and and during the outside broadcast, you know, like you reflect in the book and kind of wonder why you did keep pushing on mm. while having a miscarriage you know, and, and still broadcasting on air. And how did you, I guess, reconcile or reflect on that fact and, you know, what it what the experience is like? Because it seems like even the after experience of going to the hospital, you know, and, and confronting the doctors and having the scans, it seems like it's also kind of pushed to the side externally as much yeah. as um, internally. Yeah, look, it, it, was a, it was a total nightmare. Um, and... And looking back from the benefit of, you know, several decades, <clears throat> it feels like a kind of madness that I didn't, mm, well, that I kept broadcasting. So, yeah, I was presenting a, a weekly program on ABC Melbourne at the time, an arts program, and we were doing this outside broadcast at Heidi. And so, you know, there was a, there was a, an, a live audience, there were guests there, and I discovered that I was, you know, having this, again, quite early miscarriage. And, yeah, I just, you know, I, I literally said to myself, well, I, you know, I've just got to keep going. Mm. And, yeah, so decades later I was thinking to myself, if I'd been a man having, I don't know, a, a possible heart attack or, you know, or something, um, or a panic attack or, I don't know, something um, equally serious physically going on for me, surely I would have just stopped and said, oh, sorry, I have to go, I have to go to the hospital, or, you know, I have to, mm. someone else has to do this. But somewhere in my brain, I just thought, no, I, I have to keep going. And I, you know, what I, what I wrote about in the book is that I, I think in part it's to do with 
the message women have had for a very long time, well, conflicting messages. Okay, so historically, women have been told both that their bulging, bleeding, you know, um, fertile bodies are somehow weird and wrong and dangerous and make us, you know, potentially not the right person for the job. Um, but then at the same time, we're also told that if you get the job, you, you can't allow any of those female things to interfere with the job because that, that will be proof that women really aren't up to it. So I think in my mind it was like, okay, well, I've, I've got this job, which, you know, not many women at that stage had those presenting jobs and I can't appear to be weak or problematic or, you know. Yeah. Um, or also I think I didn't want my bosses to know that I was trying to get pregnant because I'd seen other women get pregnant, go off on maternity leave and have the jobs whisked out from under them um, or, or not have contracts renewed once people got wind of the fact that they were trying to have kids. So, you know, there were a lot, a lot of things going on that absolutely got in the way of me responding in a, a more rational way to what was happening in my body. And, yeah, so after the show, my partner and I went to hospital and had, you know, I had the ultrasound scan. And, and again, that, as you mentioned, Amy, the, the attitude from the medicos dealing with me was just like, oh, well, yep, carry on. You know, the, mm. the, the ultrasound person literally said, are you sure you were pregnant? You yeah, know, there's nothing there. Um, maybe you weren't pregnant after all. And... So no acknowledgement of what a huge, terrible, sad thing this was that, that, that we were going through. No. Yeah, it's shocking to hear, but I'm, I get the sense that it's not uncommon uh, and that this is a kind of problem. It might even still be, I'm not sure to the degree, but certainly the insensitivity, it seems, uh, from society around these issues is quite pervasive. Um, and it does extend even into, you know, IVF and the experience of that with some doctors versus others, you know, some being better than others at tact um, and communication. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, there was another experience you describe around uh, go, having to go in and out of hospital to get this blood test to see whether you were pregnant again and whether it was an ectopic pregnancy mm. and the potential... Um, you know, co medical consequences of an ectopic pregnancy because it can be life-threatening in some cases. And even that felt or seemed to be very, I don't know, impersonal, confusing, um, like it didn't have a satisfactory answer for you. And I, I don't know, I wondered, had these, were these experiences, um, you know, affecting you after the fact when you were going on your journey and, and continuing to want to become a mother? Yeah, well, I... So that one you were just referring to, the ectopic pregnancy and miscarriage, that was the third one. And, and in between these miscarriages, I had long periods of apparent infertility, you know, like literally this went on for years and mm. no one was able to tell me why, what... what no one could find the problem or a problem. Um, and, yeah, so I, you know, I had this awful experience of being about to, to, to head off overseas with my partner as a kind of consolation prize, you know, European trip and <laughs> discovered I was pregnant just before about to leave. But then, yes, shanghaiing in and out of hospital 
with them, not sure whether I was miscarrying and if I was miscarrying, was it ectopic, in which case could I potentially, you know, lose lose even more fertility potential and... Um, I mean, I was lucky in that it resolved without me having to have, you know, surgery or medication. But um, I got really, really depressed. I think that's the that was the point at which the cumulative effect of these years of disappointment and um, lack of grieving um, really hit me hard. Um, and yeah, I, I it sort of it sort of ruined that relationship. Really, you know, that was a really big factor in why that relationship with that that man uh, did not survive. Um, and, you know, I think that's another thing that we perhaps we don't acknowledge or talk about enough is the, um, the cost of these kinds of fertility, um, you know, infertility experiences on relationships because it's the woman's body, obviously, that's having to endure all of this and very hard, I imagine, for men to know often or partners, not just men, but partners, to know um, how to support someone who's going through this. Uh, you know, and my, my partner was a, a very, very positive person and just kept trying to be positive and saying, oh, you know, we'll get there in the end, we'll get there in the end. And so that was another factor, I think, in me not feeling able to grieve because I thought, okay, well, I've just got to stay positive too. But... Mm. You know that that you're on a hiding to nothing if if you've got a deep well of grief and you're just trying to maintain this kind of toxic positivity. I think. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And you talk um, a little bit after that about you know your outlook, uh, in particular about being a person who doesn't fail. You know, and you're not. Yeah. You say that's not a boast. It's a neurosis. <laughs> I've made sure that from the outside I look like a winner, a conscientious student hardworking employee, life presenting as a series of exams, me making sure I pass them. On the rare occasions when I've failed in public, I've been mortified beyond belief. And I know a lot of people listening will, you know, that will resonate with them. Uh, and, you know, that is the kind of moment where you shift gear into IVF and looking at that at least and speaking to some doctors about it and getting a sense of what this might be for you and your partner. Um, and it, you know, it sounds like, I don't know, I was a bit struck by the waiting rooms Ugh. and the experience of just going in and seeing all these pregnant people and, you know, they're sitting around and you're kind of just confronted with what you don't have. And it did make me think of the fact that, you know, a lot of obstetricians are also gynecologists and that a lot of those people going in for a gynecological appointment will be confronted with all the obstetrician clients, you know, and a similar kind of experience, an alienating experience perhaps, or one that's just, you know, very confronting with the fact that, you know, there's something there that you you don't have. Could you describe that, um, that broader experience for us about seeing around you uh, these people who've achieved what at the time you hadn't been able to yet achieve? Yeah, well, it, it you know it just makes it all harder. Make, seeing other other people who are pregnant who've had who've not failed as I felt like I was failing, um, and who, yeah, getting what I wanted. And I don't know that there's a solution to that, you know, in a practical sense in terms of the waiting rooms. I mean, do you have a 
you know, do you have two different waiting rooms? <laughs> the preg have that, you know, the lucky pregnant people are in one spot, and the, you know, the sad unpregnant people are in another spot. Or, you know, what if you have a miscarriage? You have to go back to the other waiting. Like it's mm. it's a nightmare, really. Um, but but between that sort of option and 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 the status quo, I think we do need. And I think this is gradually changing, but we do need more acknowledgement of just how emotionally gruelling this stuff is. I think the medical system, for, you know, understandable reasons, tends to see patients as bodies. You know, they see us in a mechanical sense quite often. And, you know, my my the mechanism was not working and so they were kind of tinkering around trying to find out what was wrong with the engine. You know? mm. But... But housing the engine is this, you know, sentient being who, who, beings who are often really suffering and feeling incredibly sad and seeing their, their the vision of their life that they had always had in front of them just evaporating. Um, and, yeah, and then the frustration of never knowing what the problem was and it not being until... I don't want to do too many spoilers, but it not being until years after I had had to give up trying to have a child that I finally got a diagnosis, which if it had come earlier, everything could have been different. You know, mm. a treatable condition that was not picked up. and Highly um, treatable. That's the thing that shocked me. I, I was so frustrated because that's a really basic blood panel to run and I was really yeah. surprised no one had done it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, look, I'll never entirely know whether that, you know, condition yeah. is what caused the problems. But, it look, yeah, it seems pretty likely, doesn't it? Well, I don't know what you think, Amy, but, you know. Like, Definitely a contributing factor if, yeah, at minimum. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what we do other than, I guess, try and educate particular the medical establishment about, emotional intelligence and, and mm. empathy and finding better ways of acknowledging what um, these fertile or infertile bodies are going through in their minds and souls. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's rare to find that person who just doesn't look at the results but can see the real-life impact. Like I, I do know they exist, but... I haven't come across too many, um, mm. but I hold on to those ones who do exist because they are beautifully lovely people. Um, you know, it is important to have that well-rounded or whole person approach in medicine, I think, especially when it comes to something like this where it's so tied to your life. Um, I guess emotional outcomes as much as practical, you know, your life fulfilment uh, as an individual, if it is something that you want to to have children, and as you say, it has those relationship implications as well. Like there's yeah. a so, such wide ranging effects. Um, and and I mean, you know, sometimes I, th in retrospect, sometimes I think I would have been a really prime candidate for um, postnatal depression mm -hmm. if I had finally managed to have the child I wanted. Um, in part because I had all this kind of backlog of undealt with grief and sadness, and in part, I guess, because when you know, when you're as focused as I was on getting, on achieving that goal and you get it, then, and maybe it doesn't solve everything in your life, um, 
you know, I think that would have been quite a dangerous time for me emotionally. So it's like you kind of got to look after yourself all the way through in order to not totally crash and burn, it, you know, if you get or don't get the thing that you wanted, which is a child. Mm, mm, absolutely. And it, it brings up for me, you know, stories as well, hearing about traumatic births and the fact that, you know, a lot of people aren't expecting something to go wrong or, you know, that it's, um, that it affects their body, you know, detrimentally, uh, and, you know, they need surgery or, or a long, a long recovery time. If they do end up getting pregnant, there are so many different points in the journey, which can cause a lot of damage, um, to people. And I know we're not talking about the positives yet. We will talk about that as well, (laughs) but, um, I, I wanted to also, you know, reflect on, um, some of the practical information that you bring into the story around infertility and challenges about being able to conceive, because uh, you you said you were, you know, looking at fertility statistics, and I know this is something that a lot of women might think of doing if they're in their 30s, uh, and you say that women aged 38 to 39 have a 30% lower chance of conceiving compared to women aged 30 to 31, but it's not just the case for women, it's also um, affects men as well and their age. So it takes longer for partners of men over 40 to conceive and even longer if the men are over 45. And then there's the added risk of miscarriage um, and also the risk of uh, genetic abnormalities when parents' ages are increasing. So there's that kind of factor as well, I think, that might be weighing on people's minds the older they get in their journey. And it seemed like it it kind of had an effect for you as well because, you know, as you said, you didn't continue in that relationship um, that we heard about at the beginning and you moved to another relationship um, and you met someone else who, you know, you fell in love with. And this is kind of another circumstance which highlights a broader uh, issue for some women and other people is that you know, you might come across a partner who has either had kids with other people and doesn't want to, or perhaps just doesn't want children at all anyway. And, you know, you have perhaps a crossroads and you may not realise that you have a difference of view right at the beginning either. Um, So could you talk us through some of these other circumstances that you bring up and share in the book, not just the fact of, you know, having difficulties with conception, but also the life circumstances that can get in the way. Mm. Yeah, look, and and we are developing a much more nuanced um, language around this stuff. Um, When I first started writing this book, which was quite a few years ago, you know, I was really kind of flummoxed by do I call myself childless or child free you know childless sounded very sad to me (laughs) um child free sounded a bit less sad but you know it turns out that these the terminology has very very important and specific meanings and so yes there are some people who don't want to have children and and that's their choice and they're you know comfortable with that choice and they call themselves child free but then there are those of us who did want to have children um, and for a whole lot of reasons weren't able to, and we tend to call ourselves childless. But then, the, you know, yes, as you alluded, there's further subdivisions. So there's, 
mm, childless by dint of infertility, where there literally are, you know, physical reasons, as in my case. Then there are people who call themselves <clears throat> childless by circumstance. And that takes into account, yes, what, what you just described and what I encountered in my in the second relationship that I write about. And my circumstance was I was involved with someone who already had three children and did not want any more. Um, and, you know, it's such an innocuous and strange word, isn't it, circumstance, to try and describe the kind of intense and complex and, and highly emotive situations women might find themselves in when they want to have kids but you know but but can't um so yeah i was i was in a situation where it looked like i was going to be childless by circumstance maybe even on top of you know childless by dint of infertility who knew at that point but i still wanted to try and so that's when i had to kind of go through a bunch of limited options but nevertheless options of that I needed to decide between of how to continue this quest to have a child in the face of now being in a, a relationship with someone who didn't want them yeah want anymore you do lay out those options and what you you know have to grapple with and think about uh, and there are seemingly five options that you list and they all seem to you know have their own challenges and perhaps inadequacies for what you really wanted mm. at the time and you know as you say you could have left the, your partner to try and find another partner and this was at um, 38 years old yeah. and you know and that person would need to want to have children and then try and get pregnant and then there's an option of trying to adopt um, but as a single person uh, perhaps the op other option being to give up on having children and be content being a step parent or a godparent or an aunt or uncle um, and then also there were other options like staying in the relationship um, but looking for a sperm donor and another one being um, to stay and, and become a solo parent using IVF and donor sperm. So all of these options sound like, you know, there are huge challenges ahead potentially for both a relationship sense but also if you became a single parent, that also, um, you know, being a factor. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, could you talk us through some of the considerations and thoughts you were having at the time mm. that you were really confronting quite viscerally and, you know, needing to express also to uh, the person you were in love with at the time? Mm. Yeah. Well, you summarised it beautifully, Amy. Thanks for that. that, that those kind of were my options. Um, and, and, you know, I really had to sit down and sort of nut this out because, Time was ticking, and that's I think that's what I was going to say in answer to your last question. The old, I mean, there's this horrible cliche, the biological time clock, but tick tock, it is a thing. And I was kind of hitting the, you know, uh, hitting the, the, the crunchy point of, of all of that at the age of, of 38. Um, and, you know, what, of course, what I most wanted in the world was to try and have a child with this man who I was madly in love with and in whose family I was kind of becoming more and more embedded and um, really loved being in that family. And so I worked quite hard to try and get him to change his mind about that. And there was a point where he did change his mind and he said, yes, he would help me try and have a child and then he changed his mind again and he, <laughs> he backed out. And so, um, 
so then, yeah, it was all those other those other options. Um, and I, you know, I asked a male friend if he would consider being a sperm donor for me, which is seriously one of the worst conversations that you ever have to have in your life. Yeah. <laughs> Just mortifying. And the answer was clearly no. Um, mm. And yeah, I mean, I I, I could have applied for adoption but as a I mean essentially as a single person because my my partner didn't want to be involved I was going to have to do all of this as a single person even though you know I wasn't single so it was really complicated um but the options were very limited and you know it probably would have taken years and I definitely would um have only had the option of of adopting a child with you know really serious needs in various ways um and I was you know, a freelancer um, with with very few savings, um, and I just didn't feel like I was going to be able to do that, basically. Um, and but because I had had these so-called infertility experiences, you know, I had a medical history of apparent possible infertility that allowed me to apply to use anonymous donor sperm using IVF. Um, and in the end, that that's the choice I made. And that's another one that it's really interesting, Amy, to look back on because, of course, more and more people who are the, the, you know, the product of anonymous sperm donations are suddenly turning around and saying, well, wait a minute, who am I? Mm. Who was my, in inverted commas, father? What is my genetic legacy? What siblings might I have? Um, and so the rules are starting to change around the, anonym, the so-called anonymity of this, these choices. Um, and at the time, it's not that I didn't think about that possibility. It's not that I didn't think, oh, you know, I wonder how this will feel t- to my child if I have a child with no apparent father. But... As I also write about in the book, uh, my siblings and I lost our father to drowning when I was very, very young. I was only three months old. So I never knew my own biological father. And I had a very lovely stepfather for most of my life. And so I guess I rationalised it by saying, well, you know, I may meet someone or, you know, my partner may decide to help me here or whatever. And I'm okay. I don't, I don't know my biological father and I'm okay. So, you know, some part of me knew that it was potentially an issue, but I was so fixated on getting this thing that I so badly wanted that I just sort of brushed it off and thought, oh, well, yeah, I'll deal with that problem in the future if it comes. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's very complicated, isn't it? It sure is. Absolutely. And, you know, you describe that experience of IVF and, um, you know, not only the the physical experience of having to inject yourself, but also thinking about who would be the, the person I choose to have this sperm. And, you know, like <laughs> it is quite an absurd thing to have to go through to, and to make the judgments based on that tiny amount of information you describe on the forms that they give, yeah. you know, and your how do you judge their motivations for for donating sperm. I mean, these are all things that must be quite alien experiences to have to navigate and to make, as I say, a kind of a life judgment on, um, and then to go through that whole process. You know, what 
what were your takeaways from going through IVF? Because it does sound like a lot of people have very varied experiences and, you know, the only kind of experiences I'd ever heard of before this was so many women, especially um, nurses I'd come across who'd done IVF saying, oh, as soon as I stopped IVF, then I got pregnant. And they all just laughed at how funny it was. They went through all the trauma and then they got pregnant naturally, which, you know, isn't the case for a lot of other people, you know, doesn't then happen um, after yeah. IVF failing. So, yeah, what, what, does, what did that experience mean to you? Oh, yeah, it was horrible. Well, to be honest, mm. it was absolutely horrible. Um, it was horrible in part because of doing it alone. Um, and, you know, my, my then partner just didn't want anything to do with it, um, like literally absolutely nothing to do with it. And so, you know, I had to get myself to all the appointments and get myself home again and um, do all the, you know, injections and all the things that you have to do and... And then the, you know, all the medical appointments, I, I really felt like I was in a kind of a sausage factory, you know. It's like, right, next, what, which stage are you up to? Right, we'll do this to you or you do this to yourself mm -hmm. and then come back and, you know, having to watch the dates for everything all the time. And um, But worst of all, of course, is that dueling with hope the whole way through or, you know, every time it's like... <gasps> Has something happened which means it's more likely I'm going to be able to have a baby or something happened that it's less likely? You know, I was producing crappy eggs and very few of them and um, still didn't know why and, um, you know, having to work around, like having to do all of this stuff in between work commitments. And um, so, yes, I, I lasted a year. Um, and, of course, chewing up all of my life savings in the yeah. process because it's very expensive. Mm. Um, and at the end of that year, I still hadn't got pregnant. I was still producing crappy eggs. I was beside myself with, you know, sadness and um, disappointment and grief, and I just had to make a decision to stop. Um, and, and that's what I did. And, you know, that's a very, very hard decision after all those years of being so fixated as I say on this vision of my future to have to say oh right so now there's a blank space where the imaginings of my future once were what am I going to do now yeah no I I can't imagine that and it also you know affects your affected your relationship that relationship and um you know I'm sure that was you're particularly difficult for you. You know, I know you mentioned you were writing a, a very like honest letter at one point, you know, trying to, um, to convince this person, as you said earlier, and that relationship did eventually end. And so, you know, at that, at, at one moment, you're, you essentially have kind of given up, had to give up, um, you know, that dream. And I wanted to, I guess, reflect back on that moment, but also then how that, I don't know, has that reflects back on you, the way that society tries to uh, reflect back on, and especially childless women, and the kind of really unhelpful and often ignorant comments that are made and, and many times in a throwaway kind of fashion about, 
someone's life circumstances, you know, the fact that they're not a mother and they haven't so-called fulfilled their biological destiny mm. um, according to, you know, everyone or many people's judgments. And you do, you know, share some of the stories and the things that have stuck in your mind, the memories of people making comments about uh, quote-unquote childless women. Um, and, you know, one of them being on a ski trip, uh, another one being at a polling booth on election day. Mm. You know, could you share with us some of the things that, you know, society has problems with and reflect back on people who are um, without children, who aren't, didn't mm. end up becoming parents and how that it affects them? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think because... Um, women's role as mothers has for so long been seen as their primary and most important role. Um, I think people are still often quite flummoxed by the fact of a childless woman. Um, and maybe in the absence of, you know, better information, they um, often just draw their own conclusions. So, yes, I had a bloke, you know, who I'd used to know, um, who bumped into it, you know, on election day saying to me, oh, well, yeah, you obviously chose to be a career woman rather than a mother. And, uh, you know, I can still rem remember the visceral rage that went through my body when he said that to me and, and, um, and just like, mate, you've got absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Mm. Um, and then there's all this, also this kind of dark undercurrent of assumptions that, Women without children must have made a decision not to have children and they must have done it for selfish reasons and therefore we are all selfish. So, yeah, on this ski trip, I, you know, I overheard a woman I just met saying to someone else, oh, I'm really surprised that I like Sean because I usually find childless women so selfish. Um, and, you know, you never forget these. No. You never forget these things. And, look, to be honest, two weeks ago I was at a social event talking to an older bloke about my book and being childless, and he said, oh, well, with a big smile, he said, oh, well, it's just evolution. And I just thought, wow, this is why I needed to write this book because mm. people have no idea. But it, it, sometimes it's even darker than that. Sometimes it's used as a, a stick to beat women with, and we probably all remember, all those of us who are old enough, the treatment that our former first female Australian Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, copped from both her parliamentary colleagues and from horrible right-wing shock jocks uh, who called her barren and called her a witch and said things said things about her childless state implying that she was some kind of sociopath because she didn't have children and she didn't have any empathy because she didn't have children. And, I mean, yeah, look, that's politics and it's brutal and, um, I, you know, I guess... You know, when you put yourself up for a position of power, you, you've got to expect the worst is going to come at you. But all the rest of us childless women out here hear and see and read those comments and we feel it. We know that that's all of us who are being described as, you know, sociop barren sociopathic witches. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was another reason to write this book was just to, to just ask people to stop and think before they jump to conclusions or before they use childlessness as a weapon to beat women with. Mm. 
Oh, most definitely. I was shaking my head during all those anecdotes, by the way. You just can't see it (laughs) (laughs) on radio. Uh, But Sean, the other thing that you bring in to the book, and I wanted to kind of close out with this, is that we don't really know how many people are in this category. Like we have very poor statistics, as you write, about Mm -hmm. who this affects. Um, We do know, obviously, that it affects many people, but that is in itself a kind of problem because, you know, there's not really much research then being being done about it. We don't don't have that statistic. Um, You know, you need research to kind of have broader awareness, better information, societal change, and this book is one great, you know, kind of springboard to make that change happen. Um, But, you know, I wonder for you now, looking back on all of this, I know that you have had experiences being, you know, a stepmother, being a kind of influential person in young people's lives. But as you reflect, there's still, I don't know, a confrontation about, well, but I didn't have my, you know, they're not my child, you know, they're not Mm. my, um, you know, genetic offspring. And I wondered whether you had reached a kind of point um, in your reflection on this I know it's probably a hard thing to to kind of summarize but um it seems like there is this ongoing tension throughout the book through that journey that seven-year journey of trying to get pregnant of of kind of feeling torn between the positive feelings you have towards the children you do you know get to kind of um become a mother too but then also not being able to to eventually become that person yourself like Mm. how do you feel about that situation now Oh, look, I mean, I so so part of what you're referring to, Amy, is that my partner at the time had these three kids mm. and so I got to spend quite a lot of time with particularly the two youngest ones and, you know, who I adored. Um, but they mostly lived with their mother and she was obviously their kind of primary emotional bond. So there was always for me a struggle to feel like... Um, how much of a role could I have? Did I have a right to have? Um, what what should that role be? Was I allowed, for example, to, you know, be apply discipline in any way? You know, tell them to pick up their dirty towels from the bathroom floor or whatever it was. Um, and and always they would go home to their mother. So there was this kind of um, recurring loss in a way. Um, and then, um, you know, my my partner's eldest son had a had his first child, and I developed a very very close bond with that little little kid, and f- started to think, okay, finally maybe this is something I can have and be that is mine. I can be a grandmother, you know, or step de facto grandmother, or <laughs> whatever I was, and uh, so that brought me a lot of joy for for about three years. Um, and then, yeah, that that relationship ended very suddenly and very shockingly for me. Um, and the, the my relationships with the whole family just kind of fell apart as a result. And so I sort of lost the lot in a way. Um, and, you know, so that's that's the point at which the word, you know, the word freedom in the subtitle of my memoir comes in. It's like I actually, once I could pick myself up off the floor after this latest round of, you know, grief, um, I, I, I said to myself, okay, I've got to figure out 
how to turn something of this, pardon my French, you know, clusterfuck mm. <laughs> of my life into something vaguely positive. And so I asked myself the question, what can I have, who can I be as a result of not having or not being what I wanted for all those decades? And the answer was freedom. You know, I, I had an enormous amount of personal freedom. Uh, I had flexible, portable work. Uh, I had, you know, a home that I could rent out if I wanted to go away. And, um, yeah, this is when I made the decision to, to get myself a little camper van and really deliberately get out there and enjoy this wonderful, terrible freedom that I had earned through all of all of those traumas. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sean, there's so much more we could discuss. Um, I know we have covered some great ground from this book, so I really appreciate you going into so much detail and depth because, you know, this is – you've given yourself so much uh, in this interview but also in this book, and I think it will have made such a big difference to those listening but also – the people who read this book and experience um, this in, to some degree with you to kind of get an idea of what it might feel like to go through that journey. So I'm really grateful to you today for speaking with me about it, but also, you know, using this as a platform to talk about the issue of people who are childless but not by choice because it is it is going to make a difference. And, um, yeah, I thank you so much for your honesty and for sharing today. Oh, my pleasure, Amy. Thanks so much for giving me so much time to <laughs> to talk it all through. Yeah. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really feel like this um, the book deserves it and you need to do it justice. So I hope people do pick it up. Uh, it's called Childless, A Story of Freedom and Longing by Sean Pryor. It's out through text publishing and, uh, yes, it's highly recommended and, you know, really illuminating. As Sean said, it's for everyone, um, even those who've had the privilege of being parents. So, uh, yeah, thank you again, Sean. A pleasure. Thanks, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.